Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Who is the Greatest? It's based upon the lectionary readings for September 19th, 2021. For the past several months, my church has held its Sunday worship services outdoors. Parishioners sit in a wide circle of folding chairs around our parish labyrinth. Facing the altar, we've moved onto the church steps. Our parish children sit among us, their hands deep in the activity bins our youth minister has assembled for each child, filled with toys, stickers, books, and art supplies. Sometimes the youngest children get restless, and one or more of them gets up and starts walking the labyrinth in the middle of the service. While we grown-ups chant a psalm, sing a hymn, or listen to a sermon, our youngest parishioners embody the way of faith with their little feet. Sometimes, if the worship music is particularly lively, they dance, or shout emphatic amens at the close of the Lord's Prayer, or wander over to the altar to get closer looks at the bread and the wine. I suppose some folks might find this distracting, but I love it. I love the unselfconsciousness of children in worship. I love their curiosity, their intensity, their sure sense of welcome and belonging. I love that they're honest and holy themselves in the presence of God. When they're delighted, we can see their joy clear and plain. When they're bored, hungry, sad, scared, or irritable, they let us know that too. In this week's Gospel reading, Jesus takes a little child into his arms, turns to his disciples, and says, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. On the face of it, this tender gesture is so small and so simple, we easily miss its radicalism. But consider this. Jesus doesn't say, welcome the child because it's a kind or loving or generous thing to do. He says, do you want to see what God looks like? Do you want to find God's stand-in hidden here among you? Are you curious about the truest nature of divine greatness? then welcome the child. Welcome the child, and you welcome God. The context for this remarkable claim is an argument that breaks out among the disciples when Jesus explains, for the second time, that he will suffer, die, and rise again after three days. The disciples don't understand a word Jesus says, but they're too afraid to ask questions. Instead, they argue among themselves about who is the greatest. When Jesus asks what their quarrel is about, they refuse to answer. They're too embarrassed. But he already knows why they're bickering, so he brings a child into their midst, gathers the child into his arms, and upends his disciples' notions of greatness and power. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Perhaps if I didn't have so much experience with children, both as a parent and as a previous children's minister, I'd be tempted to sentimentalize Jesus' gesture. I've heard well-meaning people suggest, for example, that Jesus likens children to God because children are so innocent, so good. Perhaps, but the children I know are all so feisty, clever, quick, fierce, generous, selfish, naughty, obedient, curious, bored, quiet, loud, challenging, funny, surprising, creative, destructive, solemn, and exhausting. I think Jesus knew as much when he described children as trustworthy representations of God. So what can we really learn about God by welcoming children? How can children open us up to deeper, more authentic communion with the divine? What might children teach us about greatness? Here are some possibilities. Children show us that our imaginations are pathways to God. I spent several years teaching Sunday school, and there was rarely an occasion when I wasn't amazed by the imaginative scope of the kids in my classroom. 
They could stack 20 Lego bricks together and see an entire civilization. They could cover a piece of construction paper in what looked like scribbles and tell a fully formed story based on those wiggly lines. When I told them Bible stories, they could fill in creative details using the full range of their senses. Here's what the perfume in the woman's alabaster jar smelled like. Here's what Peter's calloused feet in Jesus' hands felt like. Here's what the bread at the Last Supper tasted like. In our Gospel reading, Jesus invites the disciples to imagine a world where death doesn't have the final word, where inexpressible suffering gives way to irrepressible joy, where resurrection is not merely a possibility, but a promise. But the disciples can't make the leap. They're bound by preconceived notions of who and what the Messiah must be, and they lack the imagination to envision a world as revolutionary as the one Jesus holds out to them. Doctrine, dogma, and theology, in other words, hold their spiritual senses captive. Welcome the child, Jesus says in response. Open your imaginations. Return to the capacity for wonder, newness, and strangeness you knew as a child. Children teach us to risk hard questions on our way to God. As I mentioned earlier, kids aren't afraid to ask awkward, challenging, and even impossible questions. They're naturally curious, they're not embarrassed by their ignorance, and they're willing to risk social discomfort to get to the truth. If they don't understand something, they ask, and they persist in asking. In contrast, the disciples in this week's Gospel story miss an opportunity to draw closer to Jesus because they're too afraid to ask hard questions. In telling them candidly about the suffering that lies in his future, Jesus offers his disciples the possibility of a deeper, more vulnerable making intimacy with him. But they refuse the invitation, either because they don't have the courage to admit their ignorance, or because they can't bear to hear truths that might cause them pain. Perhaps they believe, as we so often do, that avoiding the uncomfortable stuff will save them. Whatever the case, their unwillingness to ask tough questions of themselves, of each other, and of Jesus limits their growth and their fellowship with God. Children teach us to trust God's abundance. Young children generally expect that there's enough to go around, enough time, enough hugs, enough attention, enough love. It doesn't occur to them to fear scarcity unless they're conditioned to do so. Left to themselves, they assume plenitude. In her memoir, The Cloister Walk, Kathleen Norris tells a beautiful story about St. Therese of Lisieux. When Therese was four years old, she was shown a handful of colorful ribbons and asked to choose one. Entranced, she simply responded, I choose all. The disciples in this week's story, though, don't believe that all is available in the kingdom of God. They don't lean into Jesus' generosity, sufficiency, and abundance. Believing that what's available to them is meager and inadequate to start with, they quarrel for first place, first dibs, first prize. In response, Jesus points them to the non-striving, unambitious, open-hearted trust of a young child, as if to say, stop racing, stop competing, stop scrambling. There is enough. I am enough. And finally, children teach us what divine power looks like. This, I think, is the most radical lesson of the four. A young child is a very picture of vulnerability. In some cultures, children are socially invisible. In others, they're legally unprotected. Here in the United States, children routinely suffer the catastrophic effects of lax gun laws, cruel immigration policies, unaffordable health care, underfunded schools, and racist violence. In all cultures, children are at the mercy of those who are older, bigger, and stronger than they are. And yet this, this shocking portrait of powerlessness, is a portrait Jesus offers of God. 
In the divine economy, power and prestige accrue as we consent to be little, to be vulnerable, to be invisible, to be low. We gain greatness not by muscling others out of our way, but by serving them, empathizing with them, and sacrificing ourselves for their well-being. Whatever human hierarchies and rankings we cling to, Jesus upends them all as he holds a tiny child in his arms. Do we want to see God? Do we really want to see God? Then look to the child abandoned in the alleyway. Look to the child detained at our border. Look to the child a priest has molested. Look to the child who is fleeing from war. Look to the least of these and see the face of God. One of the most central and amazing truths about Christianity is that God became a helpless human infant. In this week's Gospel story, Jesus underscores that stunning truth with another. All children represent God's heart, God's likeness, God's power. To welcome a child is to welcome the divine. To cultivate childlikeness is to cultivate godliness. To choose vulnerability is to be great in the kingdom of God. For books this week, Dan reviews James Dillon's The Gospel of It's a Wonderful Life, A Spiritual Journey Through the Movie. In the introduction to his book, James Dillon compares his own life to the character George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, in Frank Capra's Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. A medical crisis at about age 50 landed Dillon in the hospital for three weeks. This sounds horrible on the face of it, but he came to see it as his miraculous illness with the help of watching the famous Capra movie. It was like I was witnessing my story all over again. Dylan describes himself as a lifelong and active Catholic believer and says that watching Capra's movie was a profoundly spiritual experience that radically changed his life. Watching It's a Wonderful Life became a yearly ritual for him. One Advent, he put together a four-week discussion group in his church to reflect on the movie, which in turn led to this book. He describes the book as a resource, and not a blueprint that pretends to have one correct interpretation of the film. Rather, it's intended to help facilitators lead their own groups. The book divides the movie into four sections of about 30 minutes each, such that it lends itself to the four weeks of Advent. Although Capra's movie received mixed reviews when it was released in 1946 and did poorly at the box office, today it is widely acknowledged as one of the best films ever made. For many families, watching it has become a Christmas ritual. Both Capra and Jimmy Stewart said that it was their favorite film. And for films this week, It's a Wonderful Life. By the time Frank Capra was about 30 years old, he was one of Hollywood's most famous and successful filmmakers. His movie, It Happened One Night, won five Academy Awards. His autobiographical film, It's a Wonderful Life, had a much different fate. It received mixed reviews when it was released in 1946 and did poorly at the box office. The classic Christmas story stars Jimmy Stewart as George Bailey, who suffers the loss of his personal dreams, but who, with the help of his guardian angel Clarence, begins to see his life in a profoundly different way. Later, the film was placed into the public domain, as a, and as a consequence, television stations could broadcast the movie for free. Today, It's a Wonderful Life is widely acknowledged as one of the best films ever made, and for many families, watching it has become a Christmas ritual. Both Capra and Jimmy Stewart said it was their favorite film. I'm publishing this review now and in conjunction with the book by James Dillon called The Gospel of It's a Wonderful Life as an opportunity for a faith and film discussion group during the upcoming Advent season. And lastly, for poetry this week, Stephen Spender's I Think of Those Who Are Truly Great. I think continually of those who are truly great. 
who from the womb remembered the soul's history through corridors of light, where the hours are suns endless and singing, whose lovely ambition was that their lips, still touched with fire, should tell of the spirit, clothed from head to foot in song, and who hoarded from the spring branches the desires falling across their bodies like blossoms. What is precious is never to forget the essential delight of the blood drawn from ageless springs breaking through rocks and worlds before our earth, never to deny its pleasure in this morning simple light, nor its grave evening demand for love, never to allow gradually the traffic to smother with noise and fog the flowering of the spirit. Near the snow, near the sun, in the highest field, see how these names are fetid by the waving grass and by the streamers of white cloud and whispers of wind in the listening sky. The names of those who in their lives fought for life, who wore at their hearts the fire center. Born of the sun, they traveled a short while toward the sun and left the vivid air singed with their honor. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for September 19th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.